0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters, spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More where we strive to discover more through intentional dialogues. My name is
1: Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast will serve as a space to exchange ideas from the collective experience. Today's guest is Tu Fam, a former Big Four accountant turned entrepreneur and real estate investor. Good morning, Tu.
2: Hey, Aiden. How's it going?
1: Good, man. How are you? Not too bad. You uh, want to start us off and introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, for sure. So um, my parents, uh, they immigrated over to the United States from Vietnam when they're about maybe 20 years old. Settled in the Bronx, I'd say uh, up until the age of seven or eight. That's when I moved over, or my family and I moved over to Philly. Uh, two brothers, two sisters, by the way. I'm the fourth youngest grew up as part of the Philadelphia educational school system, attended Drexel University, studied business, concentrated in accounting, finance, and law. I ended up working for the Big Four and uh, now I'm retiring from my job by the end of next year, 2020, and I'm looking forward to it and hoping to kind of spread my story, share and motivate as many people as I can, make the biggest possible impact uh, before I leave uh, my time on earth. So, that's me.
1: So, so two, you just said you're about to retire next year.
2: Yes. Right? And how old are you? I am 29, turning 30, soon.
1: So you're planning to retire at the age of 30, 31, or at least that's within
2: reach? Yeah, I'd say by the age of 30, 31, yeah, yep. Right
1: how exactly did you pull this off?
2: So uh, how did I pull this off? I guess let me back it up a little bit. Uh, once I graduated from Drexel University, I started my career at KPMG. Actually,
0: could we backtrack a little bit further? So could we, so I think America is in a pretty unique position where there's a lot of immigrant success stories and the whole concept of American Dream was bred from immigration success stories. So do you know a lot about your parents' immigration backgrounds? Have your parents talked to you about what that process is like? Maybe some sort of adversity and obstacles they went through?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I still have vivid memories when I was four or five and six years old. We lived in an apartment uh, in New York City, Bronx particularly. Looking back at it in hindsight, I didn't realize how poor my family was. Um, I recall my parents um, doing these take-home factory jobs, uh, just bringing home boxes and boxes of like st- like stuff that they would sell, like Marshalls or Ross, like hair clips or whatever. And I just remember like <laughs> my parents literally had... a uh, me and my siblings just kind of lined up sitting Now We're probably like, you know, two, three, four, and six years old. Just putting on barcode stickers on hairpins, whatever it is. Just kind of helping them out, making money, and trying to move up in society. And uh, that was uh, where I think early on in my age, uh, my parents, they, I realized how stiff they were when it came to education. I, I, I have vivid memories when I was a five-year-old, no, six-year-old, when I was in first grade, pretty happy, I had my first homework thinking about this big boy, big kid, and all I'm really doing is spelling out dog and cat. And um, as soon as I get home, my dad pretty aggressive me and says, get out your homework and do it now. I was like, shit, okay, all right, um, let's, I guess I'll do it. And and you know, from that day on, I kind of got the gist of where my dad, or I guess my mom wanted me to kind of take this educational route. So really at an early age, especially at that ripe age of like five, six, when you know your subconscious mind is still not quite, it's still pretty softened, and um, root that in my, in myself at an early age, I think was pretty critical to, uh, uh, you know, just having the work ethic that I have today. So because so we are both Asian Americans, and
0: when I look at myself through my resume or like holistic lens, I realize education has always been a very integral part of why I'm this person. And if you look at across different culture and different ethnicities in the United States, I think Asian Americans definitely put education on a pedestal because for a lot of our immigrant parents, education was the key for them to, you know, that path to success, right? And, you know, how was that like for you? And do you feel that your parents' disproportionate emphasis on education really gave you that head start or maybe...
2: Yeah, it really kind of... um pushed me through at least up through my college years you know it was just kind of more like I don't want to say senselessly senselessly, and mindlessly just powering through the years of education but in a way in a sense it's sort of that's where it was it was just I was kind of just getting these A's and studying as hard as possible getting the po- best possible grades but at the same time not really knowing why just kind of doing it because that was what I was told to do so In terms of,
0: so because, like, Asian Americans put education on such a high pedestal, however, I think we live in a very interesting era where information is so ubiquitous and education is gradually shifting from the traditional sense of, you know, uh, K-12, college, master's, PhD. Now you can access literally anything online. Yes. Self-education, right? Yep. And, of course, I think self-education definitely played a inseparable significant role in your life later on once you became a real estate investor your entrepreneur because we talked about before where public education gets you a job but self-education creates a living or uh, generates wealth for a lifetime because when you do hop on that self-discovery journey you're going to exert twice as much effort because you want to learn versus imposed quota or imposed metric or arbitrary grades that's imposed by the institution so yeah, but yeah, back to your uh, your parents, you growing up. You said in hindsight, you realized you didn't realize how poor your family was. Yeah. So when you were growing in the midst of the experience, did you never like did you find yourself comparing what you had or what you didn't have with other people, or why did you think that you were unaware of your I guess socioeconomic uh, status?
2: Um, well, I guess I I think um I think at that time I was only about six or seven years old. So I think it would be expected that I, that I would be unaware. Um, but as I got older, I would say maybe towards the high school grade or so, yeah, you started to be a little bit more aware. You start to kind of be more in tune with social media or the media in general, and just kind of seeing how the media depicts and portrays the world. So being in high school, you're seeing how others are. are and you know, that's, I guess that's your benchmark and your baseline to see um, you know, uh, where, where you stand with others. As I got older, yeah, I did become more aware.
1: So we mentioned that education was a big part of your upbringing, right? Your parents really encouraged you to take school seriously, learn as much as possible. How did that impact you once you graduated college? Because I know when you're studying almost all day, every day from first grade to 12th grade, and then throughout your college career, once you get on the other side, what? how did you use that emphasis on learning to learn about either the world or yourself like what did you put that educational value towards
2: i mean so once i graduated um, yeah, i think education was kind of behind me at least on a formalized paper credential degree type of thing route but you know educa- education yeah but you know as far as like self education that's a whole completely different uh, game and level i just felt like my just overall education just sort of stopped in a way, mm-hmm. because I'd never learned how to really, I guess, self educate myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I went just I was just kinda working. It was just kinda like, all right, go to go to work, go home, make some money, pay some bills, maybe work out, maybe hang out with some friends. But then it's just like rinse and repeat. I'm like, all right, where's this going? Is I'm I'm, I'm probably about four years into this. Is this all that there is to life? What, what what else is there? You know, and it just kinda like got me to the point it was like, Do I really wanted to do this for the rest of my life? I'd say at one point, uh about two years into my KPMG career, um, I got my promotion. Uh, then I dipped probably about a couple months later. It took about seven months off. What did I do during this time? Uh, looking back at it, I was like, man, this is actually a time worthwhile to trying to stay mentally in tune as well. And then uh, that's where uh, at uh, I, I would say it was uh, November, December of 2015. Found that I was having a daughter and I was like, oh, shit. So I, I got I to... Gotta, be more than this nine-to-five senior accountant. I got to do more in this world. Uh, I don't want my daughter to just, just kind of look up to me as this nine-to-five senior accountant, this average Joe, this this run-of-the-mill guy. You know, um, I wanted to be more. I didn't want to just blend in. I wanted to step out and separate myself. So to know that that pressure was on me was much different to, to, to go through that experience, realizing somebody's about to come into this world, this planet, and rely on me and uh, never really had that type of pressure put on me and, and that's where I kinda got my shit together. Um, but when I did take this time off, there was a moment of self-discovery. That self-discovery was knowing that I wanted to wake up every single day and do whatever the hell I want. The freedom. The freedom.
0: Was it financial freedom or in terms of just complete liberation and autonomy?
2: Liberation and lifestyle. Like money didn't even matter to me anymore. Even when I was 20 years old, I was working at Coopers, and they were paying me like 23 bucks an hour Plus a time and a half for any hour over 40. And that, that was a lot of money for me. I mean, that was like, what, 2009, 2010? That was a lot of money for me at the time. 23 bucks an hour?
0: Even now, 23 an hour is a mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, a, it's a yeah, you're salary. Right. No, I think about it. <laughs> Great wage. Even now, still pretty good wage. Um,
2: you know, I, I remember just hating corporate America. Like, everything was just so stiff and tough. And it just a grind. Um, and, and I was like, man, I, was, I remember just breaking down mentally, emotionally. I remember the partner you know, pulled me into his office and he told me, you know, sit the hell down. I don't know what the fuck you think this is, but this isn't just some fucking internship. So I was like, holy shit, what's going on? Um, and it was just completely blindsided me. I didn't know. And, I, and, and two months in, I had three performance reviews coming back at me saying that I was below expectations. He was reading my reviews right in front of my face, saying I was unpolite. Or I was like, what? Unpolite. I was like, I offered that girl halls that day when she was sick. (laughs) So um, but anyways, I didn't realize how people were perceiving me. Just looking back at it in hindsight, I remember, you know, after that 40 hour work week, working with that one senior associate. And I'm asking, hey, was there anything that I did that I could improve, you know, going forward? And she was like, nope, everything was good. And, you know, complete lie to my face. And and that's where, you know, I got that performance review read in front of my face by that partner that hired me. And it really shook me, it shook me to, to really put on a stronger work ethic out there. Not that I lacked any work ethic prior to that, but I only had that, I guess, academic work ethic. But in terms of, like, the professional working ethic, um, that's where I think I've really started to develop that grit and grind and to really kind of pu- funnel and power my way through the rest of corporate America, and even to t- today since I'm still working. So.
1: It sounds like it's more than just work ethic, right? Because you were working very hard before and after your performance reviews right yeah it was more so awareness from what i'm hearing like yeah you shine the light on how you were showing up on the day-to-day because i mean what did the big four work day look like like you said it was really tedious but what were you doing regularly
2: no you're absolutely right it was just strictly awareness um honestly i was kind of like probably just pacing and yesing and maybe playing some solitaire <laughs> and free sell. I, I i swear to god i became a free cell master at pwc <laughs> yeah it was just it was strictly awareness man uh you hit it right on the money um it was awareness i just didn't know so whenever i see somebody else out there struggle nowadays in corporate america there's actually this one kid that's happening to right now uh, you know i i forgive him because i just know that he just doesn't know any better and if he did he would do better so because yeah.
0: in order to fix a problem, you first have to acknowledge that there is a problem.
2: Yes. And as a matter of fact, this past week, he approached me after like four months, like actually months out of nowhere, just asking to, hey, can I have a 15-minute conversation? With you? I'm like, sure, what's up? And he said, hey, I'm just sorry for the way that I behave and acted uh, over the past, you know, months. I was like, dude, I, I mean, you didn't do anything, but I, okay. Um, but I, what I was seeing was just development from him, um, recognition that there was something wrong and that now that he's aware of it, um, I know that he can do better because everybody is teachable. I know anybody can change at any moment, despite how stubborn somebody can be even at a late age in their life. I know that they can absolutely change. It might be a little bit harder, but it's also very possible. And as long as it's possible, it can happen. Back to because I think we
0: all have, all three of us have something very commonality I used to be a former management consultant and I realized I was very unfulfilling, so I left that sector, the corporate America money machine uh, sector, right? Mm -hmm. And Aiden used to be also former big four accountant, similar to you, and he also departed after a year. So was there like a point where you realized this isn't the life for me or was it more of accumulation
2: of experiences and accumulation of unhappiness? It was accumulation of experiences and accumulation of unhappiness. I like to kind of tell a lot of um, folks that, and I like like to use this analogy. Take an overweight, obese person who's 300 pounds. He or she catches a heart attack, goes to the doctor. doctor says, hey, you better lose 150 pounds or you're going to die. So now this person is faced in a very traumatic situation to say, oh, shit, I better go get my ass up and do something with myself. Otherwise, I'm going to die. So my traumatic experience that was me having my uh first daughter yeah that, that, that was the impact that woke me up and that's what kind of drove me to uh do better you know when, whenever it came time to whenever there was a struggle that i've had in real estate it wasn't the thought of money that powered me through it was the thought of a purpose and who am i doing this for why am i doing this that really drove me into getting to that next level that next year and to really power through all of that uh, those challenges and being able to just maneuver through all the hurdles that life's going to throw at you so yeah when i did struggle i, I didn't think about money I, I thought about like you know my daughter my future lifestyle my family uh, generational wealth um, those sort of things that came to mind and those were stronger pulls because of the purpose being stronger i think that's what created that gravitational pull for me to pull me out that current present and kind of into that future vision that i have for myself so um, it, I think it's, you know, what it really boils down to is uh, how strong is your purpose? Otherwise, if your purpose isn't strong, there's no future vision that's pulling you out of the current present into that future self to, you know, manifest that reality.
0: You need that, like, strong hold, like, true north almost. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you're just, I guess, living living aimlessly. And,
2: and, and likewise, on the flip side, um, if anybody's going through any mental struggles and they're all they're doing is constantly is thinking of the past past the past that has a reverse gravitational pull that i think you know because all they're doing is just kind of squandering in the past uh thinking of you know whatever has already been done and as a result there's just no progression towards the life because of their focus what their mindset is on it's not towards any vision that they have of the future but instead picture of something that has already happened um so therefore you know if the focus here is understanding, you know, where your conscious efforts are focused on. That will definitely dictate where you're going to go in life.
0: Aiden and myself, when we decided to depart our lucrative private sector positions, it wasn't easy because, A, it is lucrative and it is like prestigious, right? So like, when you decide to depart from that part of your life, that journey, was there any oppositions from maybe from your family, from your friends, from yourself? And how did you navigate those
2: um, th- there was one. There was one guy. He was, I guess he was like a family friend. Um, he suggested I don't quit, and I, you know, I think that was just him, you know, giving me that safe, conservative approach to life. Um, but other than that, I didn't really share my. Yeah, I didn't really share too much with anybody um, at that time. Uh, I can't really recall what my mom said, but I mean, regardless, I don't think she had to say over that. <laughs> it's my job. Yeah, so, you know, after I quit my job at KPMG, that's when I took seven months. And, uh, yeah, that was the moment of self-discovery. I was honestly, pretty, you know, a little bit lost uh, at this point. Um, I was maybe 24 years old, so I'd say between the ages of 24, 26, I was a lost soul. Didn't know where I was going in life. Uh, just could, didn't even know who to identify with because I didn't have my job anymore. And for as long as I didn't have my job, that was what most people, I think, I like to identify themselves with and it was with what they did or an occupation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, today when people ask me, um, you know, what do I do? I don't, I don't say I'm a senior accountant. I say I work as a senior accountant. I
1: mean, it's interesting that it's like a shifting identities from that senior accountant to like your new identity more or less, but I completely see what you mean with that because when i personally worked at the big 4 it's like the light at the end of the tunnel for so long right like from the moment you said you were going to major in accounting and finance that was almost the thing put in front of you is yeah. work at the big 4 so for me personally it was like an identity struggle leaving the big 4 because that was like what was put as the light at the end of the tunnel for the moment i decided to major in accounting was that kind of the same with you like that was Kind of your whole identity was wrapped into being an accountant at a prestigious accounting firm, that's particularly what I went through. And then you kind of have to recreate, work backwards, and kind of unpack that experience, which it sounds like you did.
2: Yeah, I, I kind of had to ask myself, what, what, what do I want in life, and where did I want things to go? Um, you know, I guess I've always thought like I was going to be this dude that rolled up on a big corporate office building in a German car with slick back hair and. Glasses and a nice, fancy French suit. French but, suits are pretty nice. But, uh, <laughs> are good suits. Are good suits. But uh, you know what? That that never happened, um, and I don't think it will happen because uh, I don't think that's the life that I want. And I think what it really came down to was more so the lifestyle and how I wanted to create that. So, from that point, I asked myself, what can I do to still have the lifestyle that I have and be happy at the same time? So both
0: of you brought up a very interesting point of identity because I 100% agree, especially with not even just the millenniums, even previous generation, I think, that your job is an integral part of your life, right? Because you devote so much time and energy and we, everyone is given a finite amount of time. So I think it is inevitable that people do tie their purpose and their identity with work. And that's the reason why once people retire, depression rates skyrockets, mental health functioning challenges skyrockets. Because a lot of these people who worked for the past 50, 40 years, for their whole life, their sole purpose and goal was to retire. But once they cross that line, they realize there's nothing glamour about retirement. It is now you're contributing nothing to society. You're no longer driven. You no longer wake up with the purpose is to do this X, Y, and Z for the company, for yourself. And that's why people are mad depressed right? But I think because most people forget about that your identity is intersectionality. It's like your identity is a piece of pie. If it's a pie chart, like your identities would be Asian American, father, entrepreneur, a real estate investor. Everyone's identity is comprised of many different intersectionalities and many different components. But because we disproportionately put so much emphasis and put our job on a pedestal that we often negate or forget about other parts of who makes Two fam, two fam, you know, who makes Benoit, Benoit? What makes Aiden, Aiden? And I feel like it's pretty cool that you came to that realization. But so once you came to that, I guess, epiphany, how did you navigate after?
2: Yeah, so that's where I was like, all right, I either have to get into real estate or a business. And um, at this time, you know, being a conservative accountant like myself, that I was at that time I chose to take the real estate route and simply my mindset was this well if I had $50,000 to put into a business and it goes belly up and it flops well that's $50,000 gone but because I had this understanding of the concept of home equity if I put $50,000 into a real estate purchase well all I did was shift $50,000 from my back pocket to my front pocket I still have it with me it just hasn't you know, yeah it, just liquid did it. Asset. yeah, it just it's just less liquid at that point. So that's how I got into real estate. And, you know, I just said, all right, look, I have to go do something with myself. So long story short, the recruiter helped me find a job. Th- th- that exact job, actually, it was just a big four client that was five minutes from my house. Now that I got that job, from that moment on, February 2016, after work, every single day, I immersed myself into all the materials that I possibly can into real estate. I didn't care what it was. All i did was google top 10 things to look for in a rental property and i just read the first three articles i didn't even care what it was i just need to learn i i stopped taking this whole school approach to learning in terms of having something so structured and regimented so for instance if you, you know you go into college typical college class here's a syllabus if you study chapters one two through ten do all the odd even questions you're gonna be successful but you know i just thought that was bs and and so I just went in hammering at it left and right, just, just trying to learn as much as I can. And, and you know, after two hours, I'm like, shit, like I, I learned so much. And I could see myself improving and upgrading. And I did this every single day. Well, maybe not every single day, but maybe six, five, six days out the week at least. Um, it was a lot of work into it. And you know, I tell a lot of you know, some of my mentees that you know, in order for things to change, you've got to change. And I pulled that quote from Jim Rohn.
0: So I think what you just said really is like a pretty important shift in education mentality Mm -hmm. as you went from public education to self-education. And like what we discussed before, that public education gives you a job, but self-education creates a living, a lifestyle, right? And obviously because of your self-education and your work ethics, you are able to now retire at the age of 30, you know? So... I think that's a pretty great paradigm shift almost in your mindset.
2: Yeah, and, and, and even as I was you know, uh, studying, um, not studying, but just reading through these articles and learning about real estate left and right, whatever I could on, on the internet, I even came across this one quote that was also enlightening at the same time. And this is what you, you um, know, it, it said something to the, to the effect of what you mentioned earlier that um, a school education gets you a job, but self education is what gets you rich or wealthy. Um, so and I was like wow I'm doing exactly that I'm, I'm, I'm self-educating myself and I was just kind of like you know low-key stoked about it but now I've just kind of built into my subconscious to make it such a practice to learn each and every single day to develop each and every single day that, that for as long as I'm doing that I know that I'm going to be outpacing everybody out there because who's going to be that crazy to learn as much as I would and I know that's what's going to make the difference in just terms of my knowledge the technical knowledge particularly and the experience that going to afford me to learn even more uh, while others are, you know, partying or having fun.
1: And even with all of that, it's self-education through different perspectives, right? You said it didn't matter what author it was, what article it was. You were just reading the top three things, kind of immersing yourself, I think you said. Yeah. Like an immersion process, which I think is really interesting and kind of crucial to point out. You're learning from all different perspectives, right? It's not what the teacher thinks you should read, kind of like that self-education from differing aspects and from what it sounds like you didn't have an experience with real estate when you first jumped into it right you just started at baseline zero and learned as much as you can from all different sides of the sphere right
2: yes yep. learning without borders exactly that's a good way to put it yeah it was just not structured that's why I, early as i mentioned a school approach to learning is very structured it's very syllabus oriented so you know just kind of shoot in your learning at all different angles whatever appeals to you so,
1: so you, that's, is that how you were able to develop your personal real estate strategy, taking lessons from all different sides and then seeing what works for you, what works for your circumstance?
2: Yeah, and also taking that into conjunction with the things that I've already learned business-wise from uh, schooling, from uh, you know, work experience, and just having my way of understanding the numbers, I guess, a little bit more than a non-business student would. Taking that into conjunction with the real estate learning that I've acquired was what now created what I kind of do today. So it's just, what are you armed with? What are you skilled with? And it's almost like, you know, I guess whatever you put in the pans, what kind of comes out? I mean,
1: considering that, can now we like jump into what exactly came out on the other side? So you threw all this knowledge into said pan. Now you're plating this dish. What's your real estate strategy that has allowed you to potentially retire at the age of 30?
2: So, so my real estate strategy was this. Um, given that where I currently was at that time in February 2016, I was probably earning about $3,500 per month after tax, right? So I from probably, your real estate or from your um, job? From my job, from my job. I was earning about $3,500 per month after tax. Uh, every two weeks, it was like 1750 or something like that. It wasn't much, uh, at least not to me at least. And I thought to myself, you know what? I, just even four days into work, I was like, shit, I hate this job, man. I don't even like it here. And what I've learned is that I just hate being confined and restricted, not just physically, but time-wise. What, you don't like the cubicle seat? <laughs> <scene? laughs> that little four by four box? So, so I thought to myself, what can I do to replace my work income? If I could live off of, if people are living off $3,500 per month after tax, which translates to roughly $65,000, $70,000 a year, because that's more than the average annual salary. So I, I would think that you know a reasonable person could survive off $3,500 a month. So what can I do to just replace that? And I thought to myself, all right, well, if I could earn $1,000 per month in residual cash, residually from a real estate investment, particularly an investment property where I'm buying a property and renting it out, if I could earn $1,000 per building, well, if I do that about five more times, will that replace my work income? Yes, okay, so that's, what, that's where I started off at. And then I asked myself, well, what does it take to acquire this one building that would now create a thousand dollars of monthly residual income. So now I kind of had to work backwards and deconstruct everything. And this is where kind of the learning kind of came into play.
1: So you mentioned you had to deconstruct how to work to a thousand dollars a month. What did that kind of process look like? Because a thousand dollars residual is a lot of money on one property per month. So what did that process look like? What did you look like or look for in a home?
2: Yeah, so I, I had to kind of take a step back first and really just understand the rules and the laws and the regulations around the real estate industry. And so, uh, you know, it was with the experience that brought the learning as well on top of my own self-education. But having dealt with a mortgage broker at that time, just simply engaging with him, I have learned that, you know, on a single... Family investment property meaning just one dwelling um, the minimum down payment is 15% and also your your credit score has to be more on the excellent side Otherwise, you may be having to pay 20% down of the purchase price Whereas on a two to four unit property you can do a 25% down and also there's Hacks to it as well where you know, you can live in one of the you know Two to four units and put down a lesser percentage, but we, we can talk about that later as well so Single home, one dwelling is a 15% down, two to four unit is a uh, 25% down payment. And so I simply thought, all right, well, I made a 25% down payment on, let's call it a $130,000 property, that's roughly $32,500 prior to closing, right? As a result, I'm going to have a mortgage where I'm borrowing the difference of my purchase price and my down payment. In this case, I think it came out to What's 130 minus 32 and a half? That's about $97,500 amortized over 30 years fixed rate mortgage, which then translated to roughly a, let's call it a, a $600 per month mortgage that included my principal, interest, taxes, and insurance all escrowed into it. And as a result knowing that this building that I'm purchasing already has tenants in there. So this is actually uh, an actual property of, of, of mine's. And knowing that this tenant, there, there's tenants in there already, okay, well, then I asked them, well, what, what are they paying? And the first floors, between the first and the second floor, paying a total of $1,700 a month. I verified it by asking for the lease contracts. I got those lease contracts and I said, okay, well, these are valid, these are legit, they're signed, and here's the numbers. And um, so I thought if I made this decision to make a down payment on a property, $32,500 that I'd saved over years, I would now have a uh, roughly over a thousand dollars of monthly residual income and i thought to myself all right well if i just do this one time per year every year for the next five years i can at least have five thousand dollars of monthly residual income that would now replace my thirty five hundred dollars per month of after after tax income from my corporate job so I, i i even took a further step back at it too from there i said all right do I bust my ass for the next five years or bust my ass for the next 40 to 50 years? So, you know what? That's where it really kind of clicked to me. I was like, my lifestyle is going to change. It's just where I was like, let me just put in the work. If I could do five years of school that I just did in five years, then that could absolutely do five more years of, you know, bust my ass and working. So that's exactly what I chose to do. And, you know, three years into this game already, now I have now surpassed my... Uh, work income and it's it's a it's a major relief and you know it only happened like maybe a few months ago when I finally signed that lease contract and I'm about five rental properties and four is renting out I'm actually renovating one property right now so my contract is actually I think working my building right now so I'm gonna check on that later just between four properties all leased out mortgages rental income it's now surpassed my work income and you know I could sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's, it's, it's really coming to fruition. And just looking back at hindsight, I was like, wow, I can't really believe that I... All of this manifests simply from a thought. But, you know, beyond the thought was also behind the, the, the purpose, the power, and the pull that really pushed me into the, the current, present time.
0: So, I believe there's two things in life. One's controllable and uncontrollable variable. And I truly, truly believe that we're not putting work ethics on a pedestal enough. So, obviously, you said you decided to sacrifice part of your 20s to really fully immerse in that work ethic lifestyle and just to grind, grind, eat the dirt. So could you talk about what was that grinding process like and you know, how, cause you've obviously already developed work ethics from working in a before private sector, working 60 hour weeks, but how is it different from just working for someone else versus you're pursuing your dream, right? You're pursuing your passion. And now obviously that passion went from a blueprint of a thought as you mentioned into full blossomed reality
1: within that process, what were some of the biggest struggles that you faced as well?
2: So uh, when I purchased my first real estate asset, it was August, 2016. Uh, This was the building that was already a turnkey. It was cash flowing already. So as soon as I settled on August 26, I literally knocked on the door and collected cash on September 1st. But at any rate, there was one tenant in this building that I did not get a chance to meet when I did, first visit the property. I didn't think much of it. It was actually the um, <laughs> the seller's half-brother. So this half-brother was a retired police officer. But when I did meet him, uh, he was kind of standoffish. Uh, I was trying to be nice and cool with him. But the first day I did, that I went there to go collect rent, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, look, I only have 200 and my car broke down and I have to go get, you know, service it. I was like, oh, okay really on the first ever rent of my real estate career <laughs> um so uh you know what and i thought to myself you know that's the reason why there's erasers on pencils right so everybody deserves a second chance um and, and i guess at that point all I like that all, 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 all i could do was just 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 give him a second chance and see what to take from there and go from there and so the second month i think he owed me what if, uh you know a, a, a 700 or something like that including back rent and he only paid me 600 so i asked him hey will do you, i mean dude you want to pay me the other 100 bucks or what he said i'll pay you later i was like what seriously he said he was long story short you know i i I, <laughs> I actually uh came to his house i had my came my laptop I had my excel spreadsheet open i was like all right well you you make $2,500 a month from your uh police pension from the f- city of philadelphia so if $2,500 is coming, in and I was like doing this cash flow analysis for him and I was like if $2,500 is, <laughs> $2, is coming in and okay, let's, let's assume electric gas is, you know, 200 bucks. You got $2,300 left over. Like where the hell is my rent? And he said, food, gas. And so I was like, damn, you, you know what? Forget this. I shut my laptop. I said, Hey, Will, uh, you're going to hear from my, uh, lawyer so and then he just kind of bars and he's like well my cousin's a lawyer too and I'm like dude your cousin's not a tenant landlord lawyer by the way because I actually know who your cousin is (laughs) um so he's not going to be able to help you but so uh you know I contacted my lawyer and um I got him out there in about two months um it was a much easier process than I thought physically it was a much easier process but mentally it was a different ball game and um actually um and this actually happened about, I think, three days before the court date. So uh, I think it was around December 3rd. He was supposed to leave. I came to the property. He wasn't there. I asked his half-sister who lived in the opposite bedroom, you know, hey, is your brother here? Did he leave yet? And she said she just didn't know. Um, she was pretty neutral. I think she was more on my side than her half brother actually, because I think she just knew he was a deadbeat because she was still paying her rent. So, <laughs> I, But he locked his bedroom. So I had one of my friend, my handyman, come through, and he opened it, and... His stuff was all still there so you know i was like you know what i'm gonna go change the locks. so if, if i get asked I, i'm gonna operate under the premise that he has vacated the property because i have text messages saying that he did leave the property so we changed the locks that night and um man i was getting phone calls at two o'clock in the morning so it, it was an element of stress in there that just like you're, you're like literally in your worst nightmares of rental uh, on your first rental property uh, investment. And I was also getting calls from his sister because I think her his sister was getting scared that he was trying to break in. So <laughs> so it, it was stressful in that uh, respect.
0: Aiden talked about this before, where hindsight's always the greatest lessons. Like right now, we can laugh about it. You reflect upon it. It's, it's, it's a cool story to share. But I'm sure in the midst of that, it was immensely stressful. Mm-hmm. So maybe do you have any recollection or do you remember what that stress looked like
2: it was you know why it was stressful it was still i was still in my first year of real estate investing and i just didn't understand the difference between the conscious and the subconscious mind so my thoughts were just like all over the place like literally when i went to sleep it was the first thing was right back on my mind so i just didn't have a firm grip of how i controlled my thoughts at that point in time that um it actually came a burden so
1: did it ever come into question if real estate was the right decision, right? If this is the first property that you're trying to generate cash flow from, were you thinking, should I have done this? Should I have bought this property? Should I have bought another property? Or did you stay kind of firm in your decision?
2: I think it was a great, uh, you know what? Uh, Yeah, in hindsight, I, I appreciated all the things that happened to me because without it, without that lesson, without that experience of being able to evict a tenant and going through the mental stresses, I am now armed and equipped going forward to be able to now know that I can evict anybody and to be able to endure that mental level of stress. So you know, I, I appreciate those 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 uh, hard, tough, gritty times. You know, it's like weightlifting. Like you know, if you're not gonna, you're not gonna get those muscles if you don't go through the hard times. Um, otherwise, you know. So it's it's those moments that's gonna make you grow. It's those failures that's gonna make you grow and. And, you know, even at that time I knew like, you know, people on the outside looking in, who was already like kind of challenging or uh, skeptical about my decision to do something like this, they would immediately point their fingers and say, ha, I told you so, you shouldn't have done it. Why would you ever do real estate? That's a silly move because, you know, going to school is a better approach, you know, in their case and, 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 and getting a job. So I was very cognizant of that at that point in time that I had to kind of consciously and focus my thoughts away from that and to not think about that because those are thoughts that would tend to make me you know i guess lose control of my mind and um not be able to focus on what i need to focus on in order to build that future because it's these useless drifting thoughts that's just going to kind of take away from my time and energy and focus that's why when it comes to negativity like i just can't have it it's it's it just takes away from my time and my effort to consciously put my thoughts towards something more valuable more focused and uh, more intentional So you talked about you cannot have negativity
0: in your life, right? Yeah, and I hate people who dwell and just focus on the negativity because like I'm very big on personal accountability because once you're accountable for your actions and once you're not afraid to accept and acknowledge, you know those because when you shift your blames and point fingers to the society, to the world, to Donald Trump, to your upbringings, your backgrounds, you're literally and essentially giving your power away yeah. because you have power over what you can control. And once you shift your blame to something else, you lose your sense of control, which creates depression and, and all these anxieties. And I feel like you found a way to sort of navigate that.
2: Yeah. Um Growing up, there was, there was a person that lived in my house. It was like my mom's friend, and, I, and I'm not gonna try to shift blame towards him or anything, but I think some of my, my mindset was developed as a result of being affiliated with this person, and his. Well, looking back at it in hindsight, now that I'm more aware of my thoughts, I realized, wow, my naive, young, 21-year-old 20, self was really subjected to the mindsets of other people. And it was constantly shifting blame and focus towards other people. So for instance, uh, when I graduated from Drexel University, There was another kid that graduated right around the same time as I did, I think one year earlier because he was in a four-year program. I was in a five-year program. But, you know, I think I was maybe my second year at KPMG and I found out that my mom's going to be working for this person who just opened up a nail salon. I was like, oh, wow, who is this? And he's like, oh, this kid is my age. I was like, wow, how is he my age and doing this? And so, uh, Ben, I think you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, people have a natural tendency to kind of compare oneself to another. And so in this case, I was comparing myself to him.
0: you're comparing your weakness to his strength
2: yeah you're right uh absolutely i i I didn't even think of it on that level but yes i was comparing my weakness to his strength and i was like how is this possible if he's coming from the same environment as i am particularly in the academia world drafts university how is he then able to do this and drive a nice car and so forth and so um at that point i was like Oh, of course. Well, his family's well off and his family owns restaurants. And of course, he's going to have the financial backing. And so I looked for reasons to why I can't do better. And so for as long as I kept doing that, I realized I wasn't going to go anywhere. But, but uh, part of this was also realizing that I was picking up this mindset from other people, which had I been aware of at first, I would have been able to consciously block it out either by physically not being with this person or just you know just not talking to this person, period. But I was just kind of just going about my daily life unconsciously, not knowing. So now that I've kind of been more woke to life, I can now just take a stronger, just have a more better handle of life, being able to just control life at a much stronger grip and understanding that life around me is simply just a matter, just simply, um, you know, matter, energy and frequency and being able to kind of control things around you because everything around you is just simply energy. I like to kind of uh, use this one analogy where, well, if I send an email out to, some agency it's simply a vibration of energy being transmitted out there that they're then going to see on their computer screen at the other end which they then see and pick up and they'll will simply email me back and vibrate back towards me so i'm thinking wow that's if that's all that it is if you try to think life on a much more simplistic level that's just matter energy and frequency you start to understand well shit i, I can do anything it's not about like hope or these woo-boo stuff that people like to talk about or unfortunate circumstances so Real estate, is, it's a bubble, right? And
0: there's in the city of Philadelphia, in every city, there are so many agencies and mediums that, that's tied to real estate. Mm-hmm. So I know for Philadelphia, for instance, Philadelphia Housing Authority is an agency where they connect to lower-income socioeconomic families with affordable housing.
2: Do you do anything with that? So I, I've heard about this from, I think, my, my, my real estate broker. Um, and I thought, wow, this is a cool way to kind of give back. know, just kind of understanding what kind of background I grew up from. Um, I'm not sure if my parents were ever on the Section 8 program, but I I definitely do know we were on on food stamps and we didn't have much, but we were nonetheless on a government subsidized program. So I thought to myself, well, I'm a product of the Philadelphia school system and, you know, Philadelphia is primarily, uh, I would think, low-income families in the inner city. This is probably a great way to kind of give back. So I took a deeper dive into the program kind of saw what it was about and I like the idea of having this guaranteed portion of uh, monthly rental income so I thought to myself well I could benefit this from not just helping myself but I can also help other people out too so I'm about five properties in and I'm trying to lease most of my properties out through section eight you know it's it's I guess it's a give or take, depending on how I want to take and approach each and every one. But particularly with this most recent program that I'm utilizing, it's called the Housing Opportunity Program. It's a sub-program to the larger Housing Choice Voucher Program, also previously known as Section 8 Housing. So this particular program, if a landlord targets a building or a property in a certain area, particularly if the area has a poverty rate of 20% or less, they will pay landlords more Competitive rates because of that. So I thought to myself, let's work backward here. Let's deconstruct this. Well, what what areas would qualify? So they gave me this grid and they showed me all these zip codes. I'm like, oh right, cool. So if this zip code, for instance, 19153, where I live in, is high opportunity area, it should work. So I was just looking at any old properties in that particular zip code. I, you know, just asked to verify, hey, is this property going to work? And they say, well, not all of it's going to work. So we, I was like, well, what's what do you mean? And she's like, well, we. I actually take the address and we put it into the um, census data website, and then there is a data that comes up that then tells me whether the poverty rate is 20% or less or not. So uh, they taught me how to do that. I literally would just sat there next to them. I, I actually had a lease signing date some time ago, and I just said, hey, I want to learn from you. How, how can you, how can you t- teach me how to determine whether this house qualifies as part of the housing opportunity program? So it was really just going on a website 10 clicks away, and there you go. So from there, I took and ran with it. I said, all right, well, if I bought this property and and I made this down payment, here's my mortgage. This is what they'll be paying me based off of this payment grid. This is a good move. So, you know, that's exactly what I did. And um, I acquired two buildings in that particular area. And the whole purpose behind it was to kind of, I guess, deconcentrate low income housing folks into much more better neighborhoods and better areas. The the, the goal and hope for that PHA program is to uh, place these people in this area to help better their lives, their ability to find jobs, better schooling. Um, because, you know, if, you, if, if a kid was coming home every single day through rough neighborhoods or just gun you know, shooting everywhere, you know, it's, it's it's a toll on their mind for them in terms of their employment, their um, their education, and so forth.
1: And I think that's a great approach to be taking towards real estate, right, Like you're actually trying to give back towards the neighborhoods rather than just maximize profits, because I mean, I'm not as familiar with the PHA program, but I would think that if they're guaranteeing money, it might not be going for exactly what the market rate is. Like, would your profit margins be higher if you were leasing out normally and not having PHA on your side? Or I guess, what was the distinction as to why you picked PHA for that reason? Was it the security of the payment and as well as giving back?
2: Uh, I'm gonna trace it back to the purchase of my second rental property. It was right by the Temple University area and it was right on the cusp of I like to call it, the hood. And so at that time I had a friend from college. He worked for Temple Town Realty and he was trying to help me lease this property out to, to, to Temple students. Unfortunately, it was kind of out of the way that you know I guess most of them were reluctant to kind of live in that area. but nonetheless, um, what I saw was that all right, well, if these properties are going for like pennies on a dollar, just compared to other properties a few blocks away because it's closer to temple well i think there's going to be an impact towards these lower price properties eventually when these areas starts to gentrify and spread out so i was like you know what let me go pick up these hundred thousand dollar buildings these ninety thousand dollar buildings and take it from there because right down the street you know these buildings are going two three hundred thousand dollars some even four hundred thousand dollars so i anticipate on the gentrification of the area which is actually what i'm sort of seeing now especially with how the City of Philadelphia's uh, plumbing system is working. Uh, funny story: um, when I had a plumbing issue at the property up there, one of my plumbers told me that they're replacing all the city plumbing lines, and what they're going to do is they're going to bill all of these residents who are primarily low-income folks, and because they can't pay it, they'll eventually just kind of push them out. So, but, yeah, um, it's I, awful. I it's yeah. awful. And, and 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 when I look back. At it, i was like you know what they did just redo that whole street and they dug it up and that's exactly what they're doing they're redoing all the sewer lines to the properties out there so if these people can't pay it then they're, they're going to end up getting pushed out so i was like wow it's really happening <laughs>
0: which yeah. almost have reinforced your conviction about giving using phn as an outlet to give back right mm-hmm. okay. and, and you're also like almost like a vanguard of fighting against like, the systematic oppression because the system of philadelphia is gentrifying neighborhoods trying to you know increase profitability trying to you know create traction for businesses by pushing out these lower uh, income folks and you're almost putting in your valiant effort by creating this almost not utopia but creating this bubble of safe haven for a lot of you know families out there so with the so i think a lot of times people often almost look down on like the money making part but things like there's nothing wrong with making money, right? Right. Because you, you found a very effective way to both capitalize on money and also giving back as an outlet, which is great. And so you talked about there's this guaranteed income
2: from PHA. So that's like a security piece. Right. So, um, yeah, this is where I kind of immersed myself into uh, just the PHA process. How do I get a property rented out? And so, you know, I learned that I just got, simply just needed a. Um, PHA certification, which is just like two days of learning. But once you get that, uh, you know, it's just a matter of filling out the application, going through the process of now showing your property. And then once you show the property, if you like the tenant, you ask the questions, you lease it out to them. So remember the tenant doesn't pay any more than 40% of their household income towards the rent. So with that being said, their rent is being subsidized and therefore the government pays a portion of the tenant's rent on their behalf directly to me so i like that element of certainty that security uh, i think everybody does they don't make any they're not any different than a non-section 8 tenant i think a lot of people get this bad stereotype of that oh well, all section 8 people are gonna put a hole through your wall that's not necessarily the case i mean my family was poor they didn't put holes through walls so i refuse to kind of listen to that so that that stereotype that that clutter and i remember just even before i did anything like people were just saying that i'm like bro do you even invest in real estate to be saying this odds are you probably heard that from somebody and you're just simply relaying that to me so that it could so you could sort of sound like you're smart but that's not really the case so even my real estate broker would say you know kind of give me negative vibes about um section eight and um you know i, I just refuse to kind of let that uh, stuff kind of go into me um i'm gonna pull a you know, a small quote from jim Rohn. he said whatever you take from people simply take advice act on your own accord but don't take it as an order it's because i realized that everything that i was doing or at least in the early part of my real estate career i was always asking people hey what do you think about this what do you think about that should i do this should i do that and it didn't occur to me until one day that my real estate broker told me well dude you you have to do what's best for you. So I was like, "Wow, was like, why are you always telling me that?" I was like, "Why would you just answer the question? I want to hear what you got to say." And so I, I, you know, I just sat back at my desk in my office, cause I, um, and I'm just thinking, "Well, okay, well, what is best for me?" You really have to kind of assess that situation because there is no right or wrong way to doing things. And I think a lot of people growing up in today's society think that there's always a right or a wrong. When you look at the way our school system works with tests, it's either it's right or wrong, right? Now there's no like middle grounds, so.
1: I think that's a really interesting thing to point out because that's implying like a black or white, a black or white, right? And I think the reality of it is is most of it's gray. Everything is varied from person to person. So many things might work for you that don't work for other people. Like you have a high risk tolerance. Not a lot of people would be able to put a $30,000 down payment down on the house and trust the process that it's going to work in the long term. Was it experiences in college or growing up or at the big four, like being able to put down that much money is kind of like a high risk decision, but then also being able to trust yourself and know that it's going to either work out in the end or despite a failure, be able to move forward and still be successful.
2: I think there's a multitude of areas, but one particular area that I guess I could focus on particularly right now is uh, gambling. So I started gambling when I was maybe 16 years old. I don't know, maybe before that. Uh, I think in the Asian culture, it's actually a normal thing, uh, particularly in the Chinese-Vietnamese culture. But I remember, you know, in uh, on Washington Avenue when I was like 15 years old going there during Chinese New Year's, like a kid should not, there's like a six-year-old putting a dollar on, on a crab, hoping that a crab comes out on the dice. <laughs> so, um... It it, it was a normal thing. So from there, uh, I ventured into sports uh, gambling. I was doing sports gambling through a uh, friend. But eventually, I just hated the clutter of doing things with people. Once I did sports gambling online, I I had much more clarity, much more focus. Because I wasn't dealing with people, especially people who were trying to burn me for money. Or doing all these extra stuff that you know just kind of created clutter. uh, Especially when you're trying to focus on your own bets. But other people are trying to submit their bets because they don't have a bookie. So I was like, you know what, screw this. Let me just block out the noise. I'm gonna put I'm gonna create my own online account. I think I was like 18 at the time. So I just was able, old enough to do it. And you know, I was just playing you know, a couple hundred bucks here and there early on in my career. And, and uh, I think it wasn't until the age of maybe um, 21, 22. I was just kind of perusing through the comprehensive list of NFL proposition bets. So if anybody isn't sure what an NFL proposition bet is, it's simply just betting on whether an event will occur or not occur. So, for instance, I can bet that there will be no kickoff or punt returns for a touchdown and I'll have to risk roughly $800 to win $100. Somebody might think, well, that's stupid. Why would you ever take that type of bet? Because you're putting up so much money. But what they're not looking at is that the odds of that happening is not likely although it can happen I'm not saying it never happened I've lost it before um, I've been taking on the risk that this will not happen in this particular game uh, so whatever game that I've been in, I just, I just, I'm just hoping it doesn't happen and as I'm perusing through this list I'm realizing holy shit I could win money on this I could win money on that I could win money on this so you know at that time I had a small bankroll um, I probably did well at this time you know, I, I think I probably had like two grand in there but um, as I got better with, with it, it, it in one year um, I was able to grow it from two grand to about seventy thousand dollars. Now somebody might think that's impossible.
0: But Wait, let's 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 put a heavy em- emphasis on that. You say you grew from two thousand to seventy thousand.
2: Yes. So um, I just wanted
0: to put that on the record. <laughs>
2: you know some people they don't believe it's okay um but it's nothing to really kind of put out there to try to impress anybody it was just something that i did for fun and 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 it just grew like i I didn't think i could absolutely do it but i did and so my focus wasn't to reach to seventy thousand dollars. my focus was just to win something anything the whole key was progression every single day like if i could win 50 bucks i'll take it because that was 50 bucks that i probably don't deserve since i didn't put really much effort into it although i could then say my effort was the conscious effort But physically, I wasn't doing anything. So that's the way I saw it. It was just like long term, small wins. So, for instance, I was willing to take um, bets such as no, uh, a quarterback's first pass won't be an interception. So, as long as they threw incomplete, threw a touchdown, or threw a complete pass, but not an interception, uh, I would have to put up $2,500 to win $100. Again, that bet might look stupid too, but there were eventually a lot of other bets that this sports book started to remove from the listing because of the fact that I was making a killing off of them. Each and every single year as I progressed, I was like, well, I would hit them up. I'm like, hey, what happens to this bet? And I would, they would just simply tell me, management has decided not to put them up because because of management decisions. And so I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And I finally realized, oh wait, it's just bad business on their end that they're just putting on a bad bet that somebody's killing them on. So they just aren't putting anymore. You know, yeah, taking that small, those small win long-term, uh, approach mentality that I think kind of rubbed myself off into the real estate career. But more importantly, you know, not everything is all about wins. Um there are also losses in play. Um but on a single bet I remember just hammering away at it at it. It was no mega millions jackpot when I was betting that nobody was gonna hit the mega millions. It was either the mega millions or the powerball. And uh you know, they would cap me at I think five hundred dollars per win. So I would keep having to put my bet over and over and over but Long story short, I had put it in about thirty five thousand dollars and I had lost it overnight. And so um that was my largest ever single loss from a bet. And guess what? I woke up in the morning, I refreshed the Powerball or the Make A Millions uh, website, and I'm like, why is this still saying forty million? I think it was a Powerball actually, and I hit not refresh because if it's if nobody hit it, it would jump up to fifty million, but I was like, fuck Somebody hit the jackpot. And so that meant I lost. But guess what? I went to work that very same morning, and I was actually still in the big four at the time, so um, just had to kind of put my smile on, and nobody knew I lost thirty-five grand. But all right, uh, let's just keep kind of going about it. But more importantly, was how did I handle that loss? You know, did I like bitch cry and complain about it? No. Was I down for a little bit? Yeah. I mean, because it's thirty-five thousand dollars. It's not. A, I mean, for me at that time, it's a lot of money. It's still a lot of money now. So it was. It was a matter of how did I handle that loss, and just having these losses over and over again. But keep in mind, at the same time, I was also winning and winning too. But more importantly, win more than you lose. Life is not just all about successes, but it's gonna be a combination of successes and failures. But then more importantly, how do you treat those success compared to those failures? I think all too many times, people treat failures differently than success. I treat them exactly the same. I use them both to motivate me to keep on going and to keep on moving forward. Because for every time that I fail, I learn how to succeed.
1: and you were able to get up after that thirty-five. Like that thirty-five thousand dollars loss wasn't the like last time you made a bet. I think a lot of people would kind of cut off and say, "All right, I'm never betting on the Powerball again. I'm never making a sports bet ever again." But you recognize that you had so many wins in the forefront of your betting experience that did you just start like nothing happened? Um, part did you approach it differently, or what was? kind of that process my
2: mentality at that time was more knowing that well if i could do it why can't i do it again and then more of it was just having this inner belief i was doing this subconsciously i didn't know i was this is at a point in time where i was maybe more i was maybe 23 years old not knowing like the difference between the conscious subconscious mind but just kind of faking myself out psyching myself into believing like well too if you created 70 grand why won't you just do it again then so that's exactly what I thought, and as as a result, I was actually to able to recover uh, most of that money. But at the same time, they were also removing a lot of bets as well, so it, they also limited me in, in that respect. But nonetheless, you know, these trials and tribulations I learned from just gambling, having nights where you know I could be winning three, four grand a night, and, and there were times where I'm only like twenty grand in a week, and I'm like, shit, I'm, I'm like, only two, Uh My paycheck coming up is only like a fifteen hundred dollars after tax, but I just made uh, twenty grand in two weeks. And I was like, is this, like, it was kind of surreal. And I wasn't really telling anybody about it, not even my girlfriend, because, man, she might ask for a ring or something, so <laughs> screw that. Um, a big ring, <laughs> a big ring, a fat ring. <laughs> Hopefully she don't hear this. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm going to let her hear this. <laughs> no, I'm just um, Yeah, I, I just kept it to myself. Uh, I didn't really tell anybody about it. Uh, yeah, if anything, it just brought external noise. And, and if anything, I didn't want anybody to kind of think, like, I was gloating or anything, but yeah. Nonetheless, these gambling moments were these ups and downs. These were there was there was more behind the scenes than just you know punching numbers in on the keyboard and then hitting a submit button. But knowing uh, the mental stresses and hurdles that I had to go through, the ups and downs, and then to kind of just realize that life is just gonna go on. And every time I lost, it's like shit. Like there's still tomorrow that i can win my money back on so you know on a given night if i if i lost like four grand i was like well i'm gonna win two grand of that back tomorrow and that's how i kind of looked at it it was really the approach the mentality the perspective not not just always being bogged down and commiserating about what just happened but you know it that, that's life and so that's the way that i looked at it every time time that something negative came into my life i always flipped into how can i see this as a positive and it's it, it's that it's that mindset that's what's going to really drive you into being, I think, in the top one percent. So just having you know worked with other people, I I can I'm much more observant of people's behaviors now and how they handle adversity. And very oftentimes, I kind of tend to hear people just bitch and complain a lot. It's like, dudes, like just just do it. Like there's nothing else you can do but just give it your all. If you fail, you fail. That, that's it. Don't be afraid to fail. And that's the exact mentality and approach that I've taken to all phases of my life, um, whether it's real estate or, or, or gambling or relationships, whatever the case may be. But don't ever be afraid to fail. And I think that's how today's society has molded us to be that, you know, when, you know, when you're in this educational school system, you're taught to simply just get A's because you get an F there therefore you failed and therefore, you know, shame on you, bad for you because you got an F. So they discourage you to fail. That's I think the school system is subconsciously teaching our kids to Be afraid of that. It's almost
1: like failure is the end point, whereas you're using failure as the starting point, the failure to spring yourself forward or like a trampoline into what to do next, right? Learning the lessons from the failures instead of like, if you get an F on the test, that's it, game over. There's no way to move forward with it, right? Right. Whereas you're using it as the thing to propel you. You said you check successes and failures as the same thing.
2: It is the same thing. Like, for instance, if I have a PHA inspection. I know every time that I'm going to, like, fail the first time because there's just some stupid thing that they'll, like, fail me on. But valid things nonetheless. So, for instance, like, there was a uh, smoke detector I forgot to put on the third floor. I was like, oh, shit, I have got to look up. <laughs> and so they failed me for that. And, you know, they, they noted a few other minor infractions. But nonetheless, I failed the inspection. But because I failed the inspection, they now told me, hey, two, these are the six, five, six things that you need to get corrected okay so now i know that these are things i got to get corrected hey contractor can you come to my house can you do these things how much will it cost do i have the money to pay you check 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 yes 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 so therefore i go ahead i have the thought i have the vision i put it to reality i go make that phone call hey contractor let's go through these properties let's go through this list and let's see what day you can come out and fix it he goes out and fixes it he completes it but i call pha hey i'm ready Let's get this property reinspected. They go inspect it, and guess what? They passed me. So guess all I did was simply fail to succeed. Having done this over the last three years, I have realized this is such a long game that uh, every single day, as long as you have these small wins, you will succeed in life. It doesn't matter what it is. Like uh, you know, sometimes when I have a day where I look back and I'm like, shit, did I get anything done? And I realized there was just no progression. But had I just made that one phone call to the uh, insurance company to let's say place the this creditor as the second lien holder of my property, that's one less thing that I'll have to do tomorrow to then lead myself into getting the home equity line of credit that I need, which is actually what I'm in the process of doing right now, so.